Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Well, we can discuss that later. Yeah, yeah. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Coming to you direct from our super-secret studio. Hi, this is David Rothkopf. I'm the host of Deep State Radio, and I'm the CEO of the Deep State Radio Network. And I'm really pleased to be here with Emily Brandwin, who is the host of our newest show, which is called, what's it called, Emily? I literally just forgot. It's DC for Beautiful People. No, no, no keep write. going. It's David. Washington. Washington. Washington for Beautiful People. David, Ay I'm Oh, my know, God. This is... This is, this is horrible. This, this is going to go downhill. This, this is, is shit right now. Yeah. Okay. So you see why we picked Emily. She was in the CIA and obviously sustained some kind of blunt it's force trauma. trauma to the head. Um, uh, but she was also an improv comedian. We thought, well, she was in the CIA. She was an improv comedian. And we wanted to get somebody who was out there on the left coast who could talk to this other community of influencers and get us out of the Beltway because the Beltway, eh, I don't know, Emily, how do you feel about the Beltway? It's funny. I actually think that D.C. and L.A. are the same city but on different coasts because they're both such like small myopic industry towns. But what's interesting with everything that's going on in the world, the two industry towns have so merged right now. And now you've got the West Coast, the left coast, now talking about all these issues that are so important, that are so in the news and really elevating the conversation in a way that's getting it more attention. And so I think you see a lot of that crossover. But it, when I moved to LA, I thought, oh, this feels a little like DC to me. Yeah, well, that's, you know, that and Jay Leno, I think, was the one who said Washington is Hollywood for ugly people, which is how we got to um, Washington for beautiful people, because, you know, in L.A. people look better than they do here. Um, no, they just do. First of all, there's sunlight. Secondly, they eat healthier. They get exercise. They don't wear the same old crappy clothes. Everybody wears the same gray suits and spanks and whatever. Um uh, Some of no, us even double spank it if we're really going out and being fancy. Yeah. Do they do that in L.A.? I thought well, everybody was like super fit in L.A. and they, that there were like no spanks. I mean me, David. Oh, I'm just telling I say, you. Yeah. Okay. See, see, we're trying to introduce you to a new show. And what have we done? We've already gotten right down to the core of it that Emily will on special occasions double spanks it. I do not double spanks it, by the way. I not that just, you're going to admit to. No, the, well, the whole Manx thing. I just don't know if I like that idea. Um, it's, a little, it's a little weird. It's no, it would be it would be a little bit weird. But no judgment. So, like, what are people would like? What should they expect on Washington for Beautiful People? They're going to what I hoped and that they're going to get out of it is that each week we're going to be talking to really interesting people and thought leaders from my coast and in entertainment. And being able to put a different perspective and a different 
different spin to all the conversations, all the issues that we're seeing in the news. And I like to really kind of dig in deep on why these issues are important, why they're feeling the need now to speak up about it. And also maybe at times give a call to action because I feel like all the news is it's so horrible. It's such a dumpster fire that I like there's there's some good that can come out of it. And I think the fact that we're having these conversations that so many people are now rising up and and elevating that is such a positive thing. So I'd love to see how we can take that momentum and push it forward since you're hearing people talk about it. Yeah, and presumably you'll be like broadcasting from like the basement of the Ivy or something like that. So it's like super oh, trendy. It would be very cool with paparazzi outside. Yeah, they'll be outside upstairs looking at, you know, sort of the famous people as they go in. And if some of us from Washington or any of your friends from Washington, they're ever going to end up on your show too? Of course they are because... It's me, and I'll just nudge them and annoy them until they say yes. So of course they will. Well, I think your first tactic. Well, I think your first show has Josh Campbell, who's from CNN uh, and former FBI, but he's also um, a West Coaster, and so he He sort of checks all those boxes, doesn't he? He did. He got all those boxes, and we could even talk about the weather, which is what you do in LA. It's the first thing you talk about. Well, then let's just stop you and me talking, and why don't we start the first episode ever of, now let's try to see if you can remember the name this time. Washington for Beautiful People. With Emily Brandwin from Deep State Radio. From Deep State Radio. Enjoy. Hello from Deep State Radio. It's Washington for Beautiful People, and I am your host, Emily Brandwin, talking to you from very, very sunny Los Angeles. And I am so excited today. I get to talk to one of my favorite Twitter people and real people, Josh Campbell, who is a the national security team at CNN and a law enforcement analyst. Hey, Josh. Hey, great to be here. You know, it is. it was really nasty outside, rainy, cloudy. The moment this show kicked off, the sun came out. Uh, it's just amazing. It's going to be a great show. Josh, I know you're lying, but I don't care because I like the lie. So that's totally okay. Um, I took pictures of the rain and sent it to a friend of mine who claimed that it never rained in L.A. So I was literally snapping pics all morning. I was like, see, there is rain. It happens. Yeah, we're just like the East Coast. Just like it. Well, I think a lot of people are probably familiar with you from CNN and from Twitter. But I just wanted to give folks just a little bit of background about you, how you came to the FBI, and also then your transition to CNN. Yeah, so I was in the FBI for uh, just over 12 years. I came in out of college, um, you know, went to work for the Bureau, became an agent, went through the Academy at Quantico, and then was sent out into the field. Um, and just, a, you know, the right Reader's Digest version. So my career spanned multiple assignments from FBI headquarters to uh, out here in the Los Angeles field office. And much of my investigative work was actually done overseas. I was on one of the uh, four teams that the FBI has where they actually conduct uh, investigations involving uh, the attack or threats against U.S. persons or interests overseas. Uh, so I spent a lot of time uh, deployed uh, various locations working to conduct investigations with some of your uh, former colleagues at CIA and, and the intelligence community and DOD. Uh, and then as I kind of moved through my career in the FBI into a leadership position, went back to headquarters uh, and was fortunate and kind of a random encounter uh, during my assignment there to meet uh, the then director, James Comey, uh, who then brought me onto his staff, and I served as his special assistant um, for about a year until uh, his unfortunate demise, and then 
uh, continued on for the remainder of my assignment, came back to the field, uh, and then, as you mentioned, made the transition over from the national security side over now into journalism with CNN. I have a question. When you were young and you were in college, was your goal always the FBI? Because I always feel like at the agency, everybody at the CIA, that's all they wanted to do. Like they came out of the womb doing the sniper crawl. Like their goal was CIA. Yeah. So mine, mine wasn't that, that similar of experience. So when I was getting ready to go to college, uh, you know, trying to determine what the major, my interest was more on the diplomacy side and foreign policy. Uh, so I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do going into college, but I knew that it was going to be in that field of, of national security and, and diplomacy. Um, I was a freshman for just about a week uh, whenever the attacks on 9-11 happened. And, you know, for me, that that sealed the deal that, uh, you know, I, I wasn't feel, feeling very di- uh, diplomatic at that point. So it, rather than diplomacy, I wanted to go the investigative route um, and, and really started doing research on the FBI and, uh, you know, a lot of the work that they do. And what was interesting is that I was looking kind of across the IC, across the intelligence community, you know, the CIA as well, because my interests were more overseas. Uh, and I learned that the FBI actually had this international presence. It's a it's a small uh, subset, to be sure, of the, the larger FBI, but it's this group that does international work, international operations. Uh, so I, you know, geared the rest of my college career toward that goal uh, and then was fortunate enough um, after doing an internship and then graduating to actually come on board full time. Were you one of the youngest students at Quantico? You had have been. I was the youngest in my class. Yeah, fortunately, I, I, I didn't look the youngest. There was one person who looked like he was like 16. I looked like I was 18. And so uh, he got the majority of the ribbing. He's a great guy. He's now doing remarkable, incredible things in the cyber world. But yeah, but technically on paper, I was the youngest person. I was the youngest in my, oh, one of the youngest in my class. And I remember looking around going, oh, my God. And I, I kind of felt it just because everyone had this breadth of experience I hadn't had and also I was coming from a very different world but I was just wondering when you were saying I'm like you had to be one of the babies in that class yeah I was and it, and it was you know interesting uh whether you're talking about the FBI or CIA or you know any of the, these agencies I mean they they're staffed with just really incredible people um and I can remember my class you know we had uh, 49 people uh at the academy and just looking across the room I was thinking, wow, these people come from all walks of life with all kinds of experience. We had, uh, you know, former cops and uh, folks from DOD. We had a flight attendant. We had, you know, an art history major. I mean, just really across the spectrum of people who all came together. And regardless of, you know, what their uh, pre-FBI career was, they all had that same goal that they wanted to serve their country. They wanted to do it in this capacity as a federal agent. And they all kind of, they came together. And that was something I saw throughout my time in the organization. Uh, just an incredible organization with really incredible people. It's funny. I always said that about the agency. Well, I was going to ask you, is it super, was it at the at headquarters when you go to the farm, it's hyper, hyper competitive, but like it's a little gross how competitive it is. Was it like that at Quantico or is it was it a little bit you know easier to deal with? Yeah, so it's not it's not as competitive because it's not as though you're being ranked uh, or you know rated against the people that are next to you, and I think that's one that's one thing that actually I, I will still talk to people now who have an interest in going into federal law enforcement, and I'll sit down with young people and um, you know kind of give them an overview of what to expect and kind of my experience, and that's always the one piece of advice that I give to you. If you're going into this environment, uh, just know the fact that you've made it in the door, that you've stepped foot on the FBI uh, grounds at Quantico. You've already achieved so much more than, you know, than a lot of people because of, of that small percentage that actually get in the door. So it, it isn't competitive enough where you feel like you have to now prove something to someone uh, vis-a-vis your peers. I mean, sure, you do have to 
you know, get through a battery of exams and tests and defensive tactics and firearms and all of that. But you're really being compared to, against yourself. Uh, so you don't really see that competitive nature. Actually, it's very cohesive where people are trying, you know, they look to their left, they look to their right, trying to get people, uh, their colleagues through, um, you know, this program. And people come with different areas of expertise. So, for example, we had a lot of attorneys. And so there's a large block of legal instruction. And so we would really lean on them uh, to help, uh, you know, in these study sessions and everyone really kind of came together to help everyone else. And then, for example, you know, on the tactical side, we had a lot of people that were former cops and, and as I mentioned, you know, from the military. And so they would really help, you know, uh, impart some of that knowledge. So it really was this cohesive environment. I think that that is uh, that's important because once you actually get in the field as an FBI agent, you don't you don't do anything by yourself. I mean, you you rely on other people. Whether you're working an investigation that's multifaceted, or you're standing at a at the front door of a subject's house, getting ready to breach and go in and conduct an arrest. Each experience within the bureau involves leaning on someone else, and that all seems to start at least at least it did for me back at the Quantico at the academy. Well, that's so interesting because that's as you're talking I'm like oh that's why it's so different at the cia because literally they when we came in they said look to your left look to your right they won't be there when you graduate and i thought oh that's a bunch of bullshit of course they were that's just something they say in the movies and then legitimately we were graduating i was like well damn if they're not right people i looked to the left yeah. looked to the right and they weren't there but then that job when you're an an operations officer out in the field, you're kind of by yourself doing a lot of the work. Of course, you're working within a team of people, but when you're out there talking to an asset or potential asset, it's just you and that person. So that kind of makes sense. Yeah. And you know, it's amazing too. So I, so when I went through the, the application process, I mean, I applied to the agency as well. I wasn't, you know, putting all my eggs in one basket with the bureau. Uh, it turned out the FBI was a lot faster than CIA, but that was one thing I remember from, from that uh, application process going through the experience with the agency is that, uh, you know, at, at each step, you know, as human oh. beings, like our first uh, inclination is to start chit-chatting with people around us and getting to know them. And I remember a, a woman actually pointing out the the, uh, the uh, lead person who was, you know, leading the application said, actually instructed, do not exchange personal information with the people next to you. Don't talk about your lives. Don't talk about any of that. And I kind of looked at it. Oh, that's weird. And she made that point that you just made because not everyone that comes in the door for the application is actually going to become, you know, hired as an officer or an analyst. And so you need to protect your personal life, your, you know, whatever your cover happens to be later on. Uh, so that was fascinating. That's completely 180 degrees different from the FBI. So different. I was gonna. So you're in the you're at the FBI for 12 years. Did you think you were going to retire there, or did you eventually think you would have a, a next career, or were, was this in your mind? You're like, I'm going to be here. I'm going to retire, leave with my cardboard box, and go out to like Boca and retire. Was this a big shock for you to to get to that point where you're like I I need to leave it? I need to leave the bureau. Yeah. So, uh, so my, my goal the whole time uh, I was in was uh, geared towards retirement. And I, I didn't even, I mean, it, it, it never even really crossed my mind that I would do anything else. And, you know, the, the attrition rate inside the FBI, it's so low. Uh, almost no one leaves, right? When they come in, they said, you know, it's kind of like the mob, right? When you're in, you're in. Uh, and it's because it's, it's such a great place and, you know, the mission and the people and all that. So I didn't really even entertain, uh, a next career. And what's interesting is that working at, uh, the, you know, the senior levels that I, that I, um, had the, uh, experience, you know, the, the, you know, for, fortunate ability to work with, uh, some of these senior, senior level people, they were on the cusp of retirement. So they were all looking at, okay, after I leave, what am I going to do now? Am I going to take this experience and then go into corporate America, America for me? I was midway through my, you know, through the, my entire career. So I, that wasn't even a factor. Um, but I have to tell you, and you know, this this comes down to a lot of the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing now at CNN 
uh, as an analyst and, you know, explaining some of these tough national security issues for the American people is because I got to the point where I was so just uh, I was going to say tired, but actually angry at the political attacks on the FBI, on our institutions of justice. And this was something that uh, was being felt inside the organization. People were frustrated, and that frustrated was tr- frustration was turning into anger, where you had the commander-in-chief, the president of the United States, who was engaged in this relentless campaign against the FBI for solely for political purposes. And, you know, I, I hate this collision between politics and, and, you know, national security. And I don't really like talking about politics, and this certainly is not partisan, but it is about politics in the sense that the FBI was under threat by this political campaign to discredit them, to discredit Bob Mueller. And after seeing all this and, you know, the House Intelligence Community and their just embarrassing tactics that they used to try to deceive the American people into thinking that the intelligence community was corrupt, uh, I, I couldn't take it anymore. And so I actually, you know, I came to that realization that, look, this is an organization that I love, but I cannot speak out. Uh, to defend our institutions of justice from the inside, because you wouldn't want that, right? That that gets this whole deep state, uh, you know, myth that that people talk about. And so I made that decision that I needed to step out uh, in order to be able to have this platform to, you know, at least help the American people understand. Yeah, no, it's interesting when when he was going on the attack and he, you know, nobody was safe when he was attacking the CIA as well. You know, I was calling my friends, I was calling folks that were still there. And they were so demoralized and it was such a demeaning experience for them. And it's to your point, people who work at the agency, people who work at the FBI, they leave, they really leave their politics at the door. Of course they have opinions because, you know, we're all human, but they've worked for democratic administrations. They worked for Republican administrations. It doesn't matter. It's their loyalty. Isn't to a president. It's to the job and the service into the country. And I think what was so frustrating for me is seeing a president really demolish that and to make people question that. Because before this, I don't think I don't think the American people ever questioned that. And also, they never thought like the whole concept of a deep state, which I was just going to ask you, like, what are what do people say there at the FBI? Like the whole idea of it is so asinine to me, (laughs) but it's crazy. I was going to ask you. So this this whole deep state thing and uh, and no offense to deep state radio, but but it is so and I know that it's obviously play on words, but it is so it's hilarious because for for two reasons. First of all, um, you know, the government keeps secrets, but they're not really good at keeping secrets like this. Right. Once you have more than one or two or multiple people are involved in something, something's going to get out. And so that knowing that about the bureau uh, that uh, that you know makes that allows me to know with great confidence there's no sinister plot going on inside government because uh, if if there w- if there was we would hear about it uh, but also the thing that that kind of makes me laugh a little bit is that you know as you mentioned right so you check your politics at the door and that was known in the FBI you know everyone has a political belief everyone has ideas uh, but that does not influence your work and in fact if you think about what the FBI and CIA and other intelligence agencies do i mean you are recruiting people who have this curiosity of the world uh, that you hope is is such a degree that it's you know larger than your average citizen and so you don't find a group of people that are interested in the world that don't actually formulate opinions about it right so by nature you have people that are that are curious but they don't actually let that influence their work and and you know they don't take actions that are going to try to undermine an administration or you know any t- any type of politician based on their personal political beliefs because it's just not what you do but the funny thing is is that and just kind of quickly on this topic is that you know that's not to say that people inside the FBI weren't 
expressing internally their frustration and anger with President Trump and Devin Nunes and all of this because, you know, think about it. If if it wasn't the FBI, say this was some Fortune 500 company, right, and you're in some division, and every single day the CEO is saying you are corrupt, you're a crook, you're out to get him. I mean, of course, you're going to talk about that. That's going to be the subject of water cooler conversation. So we all thought it was just a bunch of you know buffoonery. And obviously, it was it was for a purpose to try to discredit the Mueller investigation. But that doesn't mean just because we were frustrated and formulating opinions that we were then going to conspire to you know take down the president. The whole thing was just nonsense. Although I was I, I kept hearing about the deep state and I of course I knew I was like, there's no such thing. But I did ask one of my friends, I'm like, this, who still works, I'm like, there's no deep state, right? There's no deep state. I'm not crazy. <laughs> She's like, Emily. Right. I'm like, okay, I just want to make sure. I just keep hearing it, and I just want to make sure. But well, that's this, this gaslighting that you know, the president does, where he actually causes you to question things that you normally wouldn't question. Uh, and he's really good at that. And so, you know, that, and that's a problem. And that's why I, you know, kind of going back to why I decided to, to, you know, go public and have this platform. And I kind of wear two hats now with CNN as an analyst and then doing reporting as well. Um, but seeing like pure lies and, and obfuscation uh, in an attempt to manipulate the public, uh, you know, that, that that's uh, that's not only unbelievable, but it's irresponsible. And so. You know, I felt the need to to be able to, you know, in some small way to be able to speak out and describe, you know, whenever the president is saying something, whenever Devin Nunes is saying something that I know to be untrue and that I know that the reason for what they're doing is pure politics to be able to speak out and say, all right, American people, you're being manipulated. Here are the facts. And that's not to say that the intelligence community and the FBI don't make mistakes. We know from the FBI, these, you know, two malcontents that were texting with each other uh, and laying out all of this. I mean, that was a great big gift wrap political scandal that was handed to House Republicans and to the president. Um, but that's not the main. I mean, the main in the main, these people are, are patriots. They go to work to protect the country and they check their politics at the door. They're the most hardworking women and men that you'll ever meet. I have a question, though. Why doesn't the media just say lie all the time? Why do we put lipstick on a pig? And I always hear like misstatements, mistruths, miss this. Can we just I just want everyone just to say it's a lie. He's lying. He's lying. And just like just. Yeah. Cut the, so cut the pretty bullshit around it. <laughs> Do you think it's so I, I think it, for the media to not say that? Because I'm always well, like, no, let's not say mistruth. Let's just say lie because that's what it is. Yeah. So I'll give you an example. So uh, and, and, I'll, and I'm and I freely use the word lie when I think that it is a full out all in all lie. Uh, but a lot of times I think, you know, with this administration and, and especially the people around the president, like, you know, we, we have a we have to be fair in the sense that, you know, we can't impugn motive on someone. Uh, if we don't know 100 percent that what they what they're saying, they know to be false. And so I'll give you an example. So, for we, example, can we, Josh? Can we well, well, I'll give you an example. So yeah. take uh, Sarah Sanders, for example, right? The White House press secretary. Now, after uh-huh. I'm familiar Comey with was. Yeah, you, you've heard of her. So after Comey was fired, for example, like she came out and said, uh, you know, morale in the FBI was in the tank. And I thought, OK. She, I don't know if she's lying. Someone probably told her that, you know, it, that was kind of the narrative in the administration that, OK, things are terrible over there. So I don't know if she's lying. But then she did say a lie. She said, I talked to a lot of people in the FBI who are thanking us for what we did. And I thought, OK, hold on. There is no way that FBI agents are picking up the phone to call Sarah Huckabee Sanders and say, thank you for you know what you're doing. So that's just one example. And, you know, take the Trump Tower uh-huh. meeting, for example. Right. She came out and said, oh, no, the president didn't know about it. He didn't dictate the statement. And then it turns out that he did. And, you know, so she says, look, I try to give you the best information possible. I think someone probably lied to her and then she, you know, parroted that. So it's really hard to tell whether each instance they actually know what they're doing. 
I do think it's funny when she said they're telling me. I had this image of all these like FBI folks like texting her like, "What's up, Sarah? What's up? We're really unhappy. Just wanted to let you know." It was so <laughs> ridiculous, but I, I just wanted everyone to say lie. That's all. Yeah. But I was going to ask you. So when you when you wrote I'll try to do better. op-ed for the new, what? I said I'll try to do better. Would you just or just like tug on your ear when you're reporting <laughs> so I know that that's for me? Like if you I'll can't say lie, just like a little ear tug, like a Carol Burnett thing, and I'll be like, "All right." Mm-hmm. That'll just that'll be between me, you, and David. Perfect. When you wrote your op-ed, did you know what was going to happen after you did it? Like, I would imagine that took so much, just thought and sort of personal courage to say, "I'm going to put pen to paper. I am going to get it out there, and I'm going to share this with the public on one of the biggest platforms possible." Like, it's it was kind of your go big, go home kind of moment. Yeah, it was. It, it, it was in a sense, but it, but I, I mean, I was so passionate about what I was saying. And this was after I left the FBI, I wrote a New York Times op-ed uh, title, which is why I'm leaving the FBI and kind of laid out the reasons why. And, you know, what has been so interesting is that, as I just described, you know, I was so frustrated with these political attacks and that the American people was being manipulated and that the intelligence community and the FBI were being maligned. But this was back at the end of January of this year. Um, and what I wrote then, I said, you know, these political attacks will have long-term consequences on public safety because if the American people distrust the FBI, then when an FBI agent shows up and needs you know someone's door and they need help, that person may question, okay, is this really a, an honest, you know, uh, worthy person? And the same goes with recruiting sources, right? So whether it's an FBI yeah. agent or CIA officer, I mean, we recruit sources. And you know, I know from my experience running sources that those relationships are based on trust. That that person has to know in order for them to sacrifice or risk, you know, any anything to themselves that that you are trustworthy. And so this corrosive doubt that the president and Nunes and all these people are are you know peddling here may take hold, right? And you may have a segment of this of the society saying, look, well, we no longer trust the FBI and that will have a cascading effect. And th- what's interesting is this isn't just uh, anecdote. I mean, there's actually been polling data where Gallup did a poll uh, not too long ago where they were surveying confidence in the FBI. And uh, what was most interesting to me was the Republicans, you know, the president's base. And of half of Republicans surveyed less than half, of, uh, excuse me, of Republicans surveyed less than half had confidence in the FBI. And it was down some 20 points uh, over the previous you know couple of years, which shows me that the president's narrative is taking hold among his base that the FBI is corrupt, and so we will have these consequences. And what I pointed out there in that in that uh, op-ed was, you know, unless we nip these things in the bud now, there will be long-term damage. We have to hold the FBI accountable when it screws up, but the fact that it's the subject of this political attack will have long-term damage. And I could not have expected that it would have gotten even worse since the time I left. But I have to tell you, each day that gives me further justification of what I'm why I'm doing what I'm doing. Well, it's, it's interesting because trust is sort of the cornerstone of the FBI. We were talking about just when you and I were chatting just about how really that's the way you would get fired at the FBI. Like it's so hard to really get fired at a government agency. I always make the joke <laughs> at the CIA, you can't get fired unless like I could come into the CIA naked, like having sex with a Russian carrying like a bazooka in one hand and machete in the other. And they'd be like, oh, that's just Emily being kooky and nothing would happen. <laughs> But at the FBI, like, what's the one thing that would get you fired? Yeah, so it is – if you lie, exactly. And, and that's why this is so offensive to the people in the Department of Justice who go to work every single day trying to uphold the rule of law because their entire orientation is toward the truth. And that is 180 degrees from this administration where, you know, they tell lies with reckless abandon, abandon you know, every single day, multiple times per day. And so to then go back to those people 
who are, you know, working to uphold the rule of law and to accuse them of being liars and corrupt stings in a way that I don't think most people understand. And, and that was kind of our joke, right? Also inside the FBI, you can do a lot of bad things, but if you lie about it, you're done. I mean, you can, if you think of some of the worst possible things that someone might do, I'm not talking about, you know, serious high crimes, you know, but, you know, you know, missteps and misjudgment, you could probably weather those, but if you lie about them, you're done. And that's because to a person in the FBI from day one, you were told you're sensitized and it continues throughout your career that your integrity is your value here in this organization. And once that's gone, you're no longer value to us. Which is a little different at the agency only because we're trained to be liars. And everyone's like, what do you do at the CIA? I'm like, well, we're kind of professional liars and then we steal secrets. <laughs> so we're kind right. of U.S. criminals in a way. So it's liars a and, and, and thieves, but on the good side. But on the good side. We're, we're using our, our powers for good instead of evil. That's right. When you went to CNN, was it just like I know when I like entered civilian normal people life from the CIA, it was sort of this like weird shift. Well, part of it was just like the regular things that you do. Like when you're at the agency, you have special trash that you throw away your trash in like a classified trash bin and you have to think about everything. But it was just also living in sort of the real world again. Was it for you when you made that transition to CNN, what was that like? Were you just like, oh, this is how real people work again? And how was that? Yeah, so there were so there were a lot of um, life changes, <laughs> you know, after leaving you know federal law enforcement and coming over here. Um, and I have to say that you know this was right in in you know when Mueller and all this it was all in full steam. And so you know my day to day work life was you know sunrise to sunset and then some. And so I didn't really have time to sit and reflect about you know okay this is a big change now I've gone from here to there. But, you know, over time, I, I kind of noticed these things. I mean, the most obvious being, you know, like I no longer carry a firearm, for example, you know, when I'm walking around, um, which which <laughs> is different. And Noted. Yeah. Oh, and, you know, I'm walking down Hollywood Boulevard here. Right. And, there, you know, I watch, walk by some sketchiness. It's, it's, it's different than before, whereas before I thought, OK, if something happens, you know, here are the steps that I'm going to take. Now it's I have to take that, you know, that that uh, ability to defend myself or others with a firearm out of the equation that's no longer there. Um, but then other, you know, kind of funny things. Right. It's like I used to work in a SCIF, right, the sensitive compartment yeah. information facility for, you know, uh, as you know, and, you know, and our listeners probably know it's this really uh, uh, a room that's uh, permitted that allows the, the discussion of classified information. Um, and so, you know, I check my phone so I wouldn't have my cell phone with me, you know, most of the day. Uh, where this is the opposite of that, obviously, right? We don't have those um, those facilities, but we don't, also don't have that need. And so kind of getting used to that, to being in contact, you know, all the time um, has, has really been fascinating. And then the last thing, which has been uh, uh, somewhat mortifying, is is actually being recognized out in public. Whereas, you know, before, you know, you and I, we worked in, you know, jobs where, uh, you know, you, you weren't invisible. known. and. Yeah, you're you're hiding in plain sight, but no one knows who you are. Where this is the opposite of that, and so I get stopped all the time at airports, at coffee shops, you know, all, all you know, all over the place on airplanes. Um, so exciting! You know, you're like you're gonna have paparazzi, Josh. You're gonna be well, on, but like, it's more... Weekly on who wore it best. Yeah. Oh, this is gonna be <laughs> that's, so exciting! That's the goal. I'm so excited that's, for you. We're building up to that. That's the goal. Um, okay. <laughs> no, but it, but it, that takes getting used to. When I know where you're gonna be, I'm like, and this is what he's wearing. Ask him what he's wearing. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's funny, too, because now I kind of feel like the paparazzi because I, you know, will go to a lot of um, uh, now that I'm, you know, I wore these two hats analysis and then reporting, I actually go and cover the FBI and cover the Justice Department. And I'm sitting there, you know, with a camera and my phone, you know, taking pictures and recording kind of what they're saying, uh, you know, for news stories. 
and you know, my first, I, I want to like wave at the people that I know of. I'm like, okay, keep it cool. Like, you know, you're just here to, to cover what they're doing. Um, so it's, yeah, it's been a different, uh, you know, a different lifestyle, but it's, uh, but, 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 it, but it's so rewarding because, uh, you know, just on a quick, serious note, I mean, both, both the FBI and uh, journalists, they have these similarities where, you know, you're conducting in, an investigation to figure out what happened and to hold powerful people accountable. And yeah, the authorities may be different, but at the end of the day, the goal is the same. And that is, uh, you know, helping the American people understand what is going on in a given circumstance and, you know, holding people to account that, you know, may be abusing their power. Um, I have a couple questions that just more of like what's going on. I just want to get your opinion on a couple of things. Who do you think is the dumbest of Trump's coffee boys? If you had to choose one, Papadopoulos, <laughs> Paige Lewandowski. That is a that is a or tough Nunberg. question. Oh, I'll throw a number too. Yeah. Well, so that, that is wisely. a very tough question. And I'm not and I'm, and I'm not being diplomatic, but I just I think that they each bring their own uh, knucklehead qualities to the equation kind of in their own way. Um, I think that I mean, if I had to pick, I think Papadopoulos, his, his recent turn, uh, you know, from government cooperator to now this person leading the charge that, you know, no, there's this big, uh, big, you know, deep state, so to speak, corruption that's at work and. Uh, you know, I'm going to expose it just, you know, right after I get to jail, I got to do this little two week sentence, but afterwards I'm going to expose it all. I mean, I, I just don't, I don't see how that is beneficial. Maybe he wants a book deal. I don't know, but um, it's just to a person, they all appear to be loyal until they're not. And then on the flip side, the president is the same way. He appears to be loyal until he's not. And so that's just a, a really bizarre way to operate you know, in life, in my, in my experience, I just don't run in those circles, so I can't really empathize, but it's just, it's really bizarre. Papadopoulos' tweets are just pure, like, chef's kiss perfection. I love them. Yeah. Well, they are entertaining. I'll give you that. They're beyond entertaining. Uh, <laughs> what about, also, see, I was going to add Michael Cohen, but I think his, this is crazy. What do you think is, ultimately, do you think this is sort of, the domino that's going to be the downfall. Yeah. So today he, he, you know, pleaded guilty to lying to Congress. Um, and, you know, I, I think all the, all the puzzle pieces are starting to fall into place. Uh, and one thing that I'll tell you about Bob Mueller, I mean, I worked for him when I was back uh, at the FBI and, you know, he, he is nothing but strategic. I mean, everything he does, he does for a reason. And if you look at, you know, he's, he's knocking these people down like bowling pens, uh, but each time it appears he's only, offering up enough to get him there in the courts initially. So there have been so many charges of, of lying, for example. So whether it's uh, Michael Flynn, whether it's Papadopoulos, whether it's you know now with Michael Cohen, I mean, he's not really laying out the full picture of what he knows yet. He's just giving you enough uh, to tell you that, okay, there is, there is malfeasance here that I'm, that I'm looking at um, and you know, that I'm investigating. So I think that if you're the president and you know that Michael Cohen, who was your you know, most loyal fixer, is now working for the government, it's got to be a very, very tough time for the president. And, you know, he's, he's already started lashing out. He was this morning calling uh, Michael Cohen weak and calling him, you know, an idiot. Um, but again, it seems anytime he's ridiculing people, you can't forget that these are also people that he hired to bring into his orbit. So I don't know what that says, you know, about, about his judgment. Um, but I think it's a really I know tough what it says about Wait a minute. I know what it says about his judgment. It's shit. <laughs> he's got crap judgment. I mean, it's not like it's a big old secret. But does this... How will this will Cohen operating? Is that going to affect his sentence? I mean, he's going to be serving, you know, crap loads of time, right? 
Right, he he will. But so the the thing, the only when I say only, so he he uh, pleaded pleaded guilty to lying, which is a serious federal crime, right? You don't you don't want to do that. And then when I was an FBI agent, that was um, one arrow in the quiver that I always knew when I was sitting across from someone, you know, uh, interviewing them, interrogating them, that if they lied to me, they were they were going to jail. Uh, if they lied about something material in the investigation, and so it is serious. But the thing is, is that I would have to imagine, and this is just my personal opinion, that. He has probably been engaged in so much shadiness that Mueller Mueller could have picked anything, right? I mean, he, he, there are probably loads of things that he could have uh, used against Michael Cohen, but he went to this one charge of lying because, again, all all Mueller had to do was set the hook, get him on something, uh, and then again secure his cooperation. So you don't work your way down an investigation; you work your way up. And the only direction above Michael Cohen would be, you know, toward the president and his inner circle. And so I, I think that, you know, Michael Cohen is uh, facing serious legal jeopardy. He will go to jail, I assume, but it's nothing to compared to, to he'll, he'll go to jail. He'll still have time, but there's but it's nothing compared to what Mueller, I assume, could have gotten him on based on these circles that he was running in. I just don't understand anyone would lie to Mueller. Like to me, like I can't even imagine being like one of Mueller's kids because I would just confess to everything. <laughs> He's so absolutely intimidating and he just is so scary. I would just like he knows everything. He's all knowing. So and he, tell him the truth. Well, he has. He has zero patience. And I know from, you know, I worked with him. And then when I was in the field, uh, I had actually had occasion to brief him on uh, investigations. And one of which being I, I worked on the, the Mumbai attack investigation, for example. And that was something that he was very, uh, he had his, his finger on the pulse of that case because of, you know, how uh, yeah. you know important it was and international ramifications. And so, you know, I remember uh, getting prepared to brief uh, him and I was talking to his assistant and he said, just remember this. If you don't know the answer, tell him you do not know. He said, the moment that you start trying to make something up or fudge or just, you know, that you're afraid to not admit something, you're going to go in a different direction. He's going to hone in that like a laser. And, and you're, you know, at the end of the, the discussion, um, you're going to be pretty emasculated. And so, you know, that was something I kept my, I, I had no intention of going in and, you know, trying to not tell him the truth. But that was, I worked for him. Can you imagine being on the criminal side where he's sitting in front of someone who's facing serious legal jeopardy who's now trying to lie to him? I just He's not a patient person, um, and, I, and I wouldn't want to be sitting across from him knowing that he held the keys to my future. Do you think he'll, uh, he'll end up when this is all over, like doing a – like I just want an interview. I just want to hear what's going on in his mind. Or do you think he'll be like taking – you know, retire his cape and just like go off into the sunset? Yeah, so I, I think probably the latter. I mean, he will be asked to testify, um, and, you know, I don't think there's there's any way he'll be able to escape from that. And, you know, he'll have to, I assume, he'll hold some press conference to lay out what he did um, in a very, you know, probably short way. But um, but he really taxed the other direction. I remember, you know, again, when I was in the Bureau, like, he did not enjoy talking to the media. And it wasn't because he disliked the media. He just, he, he didn't, you know, he didn't really enjoy that experience. It didn't give him a high to go and sit in front of a reporter and then to see his, you know, his fat face on TV the next day. Um, so he, he really well, left that to other you people. his face a fat face. Yeah, well, I didn't say that to his face, but this okay. is my description. <laughs> um, but but no, so he he wasn't really this person who was you know seeking media attention, and he's not the he's not you know now. One thing that was really interesting, I don't know if you remember, he he uh, he led the investigation into this NFL scandal you know a couple of years yeah. ago you know when he was in private practice, and it was so funny because this was this was like Bob Mueller true to form. So I saw him on on a, um, uh, whatever morning it was, I can't remember the day of the week, but we were up in New York. 
and uh, the, we had the cyber meeting and he was at. And actually, I knew that he was involved in this big investigation, this high-profile investigation as a private citizen. And so I even asked him, I said, hey, sir, how's that, uh, how's that case going? And he said, yeah, you know, plugging along, plugging along. And that's all he said. And then two hours later, he released the findings of his entire uh, investigation. And I thought, you know, that's Bob Mueller. Like, he's not going to let you in on anything that he doesn't have to. And even then, at the, at the end of the day, he'll let his work speak for itself. So I think that's probably what we'll see in this instance. Well, I, we're, I think we're going to be wrapping up a little bit, but I wanted you to talk about your book because I'm very excited. When is it coming out? Are you done with oh, it's very, it? Very, Has it gone? No, you're very kind. So um, so I'm, I am, I'm working on a book. Whenever I came over to CNN, uh, there were lots of uh, book people that were reaching out saying, hey, you know, I assume you're going to write a book. And I, would, I told all of them, like, no, you know, thank you, thank you. Because I was thinking in my mind, like, who cares about my life story, right? I'm going to sit here and tell you of all the things in my 35 years on the planet, let me impart all this knowledge. So I thought, okay, that's pretty, you know, that's dumb. Um, but one uh, one group in particular came and said, no, we actually want to, would be interested in taking your op-ed, kind of your whole idea for leaving, uh, this kind of call to action for the American people that there are consequences to these campaign, this campaign of attack against the FBI and turning that into a book. And I thought, you know, that's something I can I can really get behind. Um, and you know, the one thing that, that I was really, uh, kind of hesitant about is that I didn't want to feel like I was leaving the FBI and then cashing in on my FBI story. I mean, a lot of people, I mean, you look at all the people in Trump world that have written books. Like I didn't want to be that icky, you know, okay, let me tell you about what I saw on the inside. Um, and so the, the way I, I, yeah, correct. Yeah, exactly. And I didn't have any tapes, so, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't gonna be anything like hers, but, um, but but the, but the one thing I actually discovered, I thought, OK, and, and I almost didn't do it, but I read the stories actually on CNN that uh, within the FBI since 9-11, there have been a number of 9-11 related deaths uh, of FBI agents that were actually responding in the aftermath to clean up the rubble, to do the investigation. And it, it's these illnesses that are manifesting themselves years later. And so the FBI Agents Association, which is the, the group that you know represents the bureau, um, has this fund that takes care of the kids and sends them to college. And, you know, these people that have lost their parents uh, and they've been really strapped because they have all these new kids on the roll. And so anyway, I, I kind of had this, it, it clicked. I thought, okay, so let me use this book to not only tell the story to help, you know, the sound, the sound, the alarm for the American people about what's going on here, but then also use it hopefully in another good way. And so half of all the proceeds from this will be going to that, to that fund. Um, so that's exciting. And then uh, as far as the, the, yeah, no, it's, I hope it, hope it, um, yeah, I hope it helps. And then, uh, publication date. So we're looking at the latter part of next year, probably uh, in the fall. Um, so I'm, you know, finishing up, finishing touches now. But uh, yeah, it's been it's been a really fun project um, to, to work on. I've been talking with a number of people in government, out of government, walking through the whole experience from 2016 to now. Uh, and again, really trying to help the American people understand that the FBI was not without fault. So I'm not defending the Bureau. They can defend themselves, but really explaining that you know, yeah, there were decisions that were made that were questionable, but in the main, these were good people that have been unfa- unfairly maligned, and there will be long-term consequences, you know, to these authoritarian-type tactics. Did you send it to, does, what is the FBI's publication review board called? Or is it called with uh, Yeah, so pre-pub review is, is what they're okay. called. Um, and yeah, so what I'll have to do is once it's finished, and again, we're looking at publication latter part of next year, but once it's finished uh, by the end of this year, I'll send it to them. And as you know, you know, every FBI employee, every CIA employee, if you write about, uh, you know, the entity where you work, you have to send, you know, send the material for pre-publication review. And it's not for editorial. They're not going to look through it for editorial changes, but just to identify, you know, is there classified information that I learned during my time in government that I'm now divulging, which obviously I have no intention of doing. Uh, But they'll look at that and, you know, check that box. 
I always... I always get a little nervous because I've written, you know, essays, but mine are always so like sort of light and fluffy. Like I wrote about like my dating exploits for Marie Claire and I <laughs> would always laugh. I'm like, who at the CIA publication review board is going to get this and be like, all right, we got a doozy here. She's talking about everybody she hooked up with. I mean, I guess compared to everything else they read, they were probably like, oh, this is kind of exciting. So I'm curious, like when they get your book, what that's going to be like for them, because it, they really do have to just look at it just kind of unemotional, just about classified information. But I always, I always wonder what it'd be like to work over there. Yeah. So, you know, they're, they're going through academic journals and all this dense work. So hopefully this will be somewhat entertaining because it, I do have a little fun with the book as well. I mean, we weren't, you know, a bunch of robots. I mean, it was a, a fun place to work. Um, but yeah, hopefully, hopefully they'll enjoy it. I, uh, the, the title, you know, it's uh, once it comes out is Crossfire Hurricane, which was the name of the FBI's investigation. Uh, and I think really also serves as a little symbolism for what the Bureau was feeling at the time where you have, you know, you're caught in the middle of these just political fights and, you know, targeted from the White House and the, you know, down in Congress. I mean, um, it, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's a really, really tough time. I actually thought about, so David wrote the book, Running the World. I actually thought about calling mine Ruining the World, um, oh. but I figured that he might, there might be some copyright violations there. So Crossfire Hurricane is a title. Uh, it'll be out later next year. Uh, it's a project I'm really excited about. It's also a great name for a band, if anybody's listening. <laughs> Crossfire Hurricane <laughs> would be a genius name for a band. I'm yeah, well, it was a there. great song. So. <laughs> I'm just throwing out there. Well, um, where should people follow you on Twitter? Do you want to give out your Twitter handle? And by the way, you're a delight on Instagram. You have the cutest freaking little dog I've ever seen. <laughs> and you dress it up. And so I have to give you major mad props for that. I appreciate that. You know, with all the calamity going on in the world, I have this uh, little three-year-old Corgi who is, you know, just incredible. And so I try to share him with other people, right? So I you know, try to uh, use a lot of pictures on Instagram, hopefully make social media a little less of a dark place. Um, uh, but on Twitter is, you know, where I spend a lot of my time and uh, my handle, it's Josh S. Campbell. Um, and you can just search Josh Campbell. I'm the, the Josh from CNN. Um, but I really try to use that as a tool, you know, to communicate, um, obviously, you know, my own thoughts. And then, you know, there are people in, in our field uh, whether it's, uh, you know, you and David and, you know, other people that are these thought leaders uh, that really have a lot to say to help distill some of these tough issues for the American people to try to be a part of that. And I think Twitter is a really great place um, because, you know, the American people and not just American people, I mean, the world, right, is on Twitter. Uh, I think they're hungering for the truth. They're hungering for what is reality. Every single day we face this barrage of lies and obfuscation and just, you know, all that nonsense. And to be able to help serve a little, you know, some small role in that to say, no, OK, here's maybe here's something that you should read that I found interesting or here's a development that is very interesting. And, you know, watch this space um, it, it has been, I think, very important. And, you know, I'm also cognizant of the fact that, you know, a lot of people don't sit there and watch cable news all day. So they may not see me on TV, um, but a lot of people are on social media. So you're able to really connect with people and intersect in, in you know, areas where they're communicating. Um, so follow me. I look forward to engaging um, with the listeners. And um, just so you know, I told you if this interview went well, this little conversation we had, I would give you the T-shirt. Uh, a few months ago, I was supposed to have lunch with Josh and our mutual friend, Asha. Josh totally bailed, ghosted us. He had this, like, fake work with the Navy, in quotes. Fake work, right. Work. And I had a T-shirt for him from a friend of mine who makes very cool T-shirts. And I said, you'd get the T-shirt if it all went well. So you will get a T-shirt. I appreciate that. Um, I don't know how I'm going to convince you. I'm actually a reservist. but um, I need proof. 
Needy proof. Okay, you can come down next uh, dr next time I drill, and you can see. Okay, tell your boss to email me, call me, send me a pic. But yeah, I just so want to say thank you so much, also for for chatting. I think it's this is such a good conversation, and just to give folks a little bit more insight on what you're doing and just the world that we're in right now. So I would just really appreciate it so much. Thank you. I I appreciate you saying that. And and again, back at you. I mean, you all, you and David. I mean, you're doing such great work. Um, with Deep State Radio. And I have to tell you that, you know, being in the secret society when the FBI was a little contentious when I sought their permission to actually come on Deep State Radio, um, but they actually relented and here I am. So you have a lot of fans in and outside the intelligence community that, that really love your work. That's exciting. Well, um, I just want to let everybody know you can visit Deep State Radio Network and support all of our work and you can become a member. Members receive early access to all the podcasts and the one-on-one -on -one newsmaker interviews. And most importantly, because it's the holidays, you can get discounts on Deep State Radio swag. I'm getting a fleece. I'm very excited. There's newsletters and all that kind of good stuff. And what I like the most is they're donating 10% of all the proceeds to the Malala Fund and the International Relief Fund. So follow Deep State Radio on Facebook and on Twitter. You can also follow me. I'm at CIA Spy Girl. And say hello to me, too. And I'd love to say hello. If you have any questions, I'll be happy to tweet back at you. Thanks so much. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.